So I uh, want to begin today uh, with a review of last week's message, which uh, from what I can tell was a smashing success. <laughs> Saw what I did there? Well, I don't know if you thought it was a smashing success or not, but uh, I certainly enjoyed it, especially all the gasps and some of the screams. And it kind of makes me want to do it again, like every week. But um, anyway, we will not do that. Uh, last Sunday, we talked about how as God's people, we are broken, but beautiful. How because of sin, we're all broken in, in countless ways. We're all like this. That's only part of the story. It's only part of the story because through faith in Jesus, God has made us beautiful. He's made us clean, holy, and righteous in his sight. And that's what we are right now, and that's what we will be for all eternity. To illustrate these truths, I introduced you to a Japanese art form known as kintsugi. In kintsugi, uh, broken pieces of pottery uh, like this are joined back together again uh, using a lacquer that's mixed with gold or platinum or silver. And when you take a uh, piece of pottery that's broken and you put it back together again using kintsugi, the pottery actually becomes both more beautiful and more valuable than it was before it was broken. And this illustrates uh, what God does with us. He takes the broken pieces of our lives and through faith in Jesus, through faith in the shed blood of Jesus, God puts us back together again so that we're more beautiful and more, more, more valuable than we were before we were ever broken. That's what we talked about last week. And now this Sunday and, and really over the next six Sundays, uh, we're going to talk about the truth that how God has made us beautiful means we should make every effort to live beautiful lives. Instead of living out of brokenness, we should live out of beauty. We, we should give ourselves to being what we are by God's grace. So, so we're beautiful, so we should live like that way, especially when it comes to sexuality, marriage, and singleness. So those are our topics uh, for the next six weeks, sexuality, marriage, and singleness. And we're going to start today by talking about sexuality. In fact, we're going to talk in the next two weeks about sexuality. This will be, in effect, a two-part series. So this morning, I'm going to teach you uh, the text. We're going to walk very carefully through what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. And then next week, we're going to take the entire message to talk application. Because this is such a huge issue and because we really, really need help in applying what God's word has to say about sexuality. We're gonna take the entire message next week uh, to talk just very specifically about how we put it into practice. Now, I just wanna encourage you, next week's gonna be really, really big. It's gonna be huge, okay? So I just really wanna encourage you to come back next week and be ready to, to hear uh, how to apply God's word. This morning, I need to give you a little warning. We're probably gonna be here for a little while, okay? Because we got a lot to talk about. There's a lot that we're gonna to need to process and walk through. Uh, but since we're gonna be talking about sex, I probably will be able to hold your attention, I'm guessing, all right? Now, uh, why don't you go ahead and take your Bibles, if you're not already there, and turn to 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6, and while you're turning, let me um, remind you that the ancient city of Corinth was notorious for its sexual immorality. The city was so infamous, in fact, that to Corinthianize still means today to live a life of promiscuity and debauchery. 
On the Acropolis outside of the city set a temple to Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love and pleasure. And each night there would be many prostitutes that would come down the hill from the temple into the uh, streets of the city to ply their trade. It's been said or at least estimated that one in 30 people in Corinth were prostitutes. And so you didn't have to look very far to find one. And this led to a culture in the city in which pretty much anything went sexually, where, as I pointed out last week, every kind of sexual sin uh, was not only okay, but it was applauded, it was celebrated, it was encouraged. Now, most significantly for our consideration, as you might imagine, this created some real challenges for the church in Corinth. Especially in light of the fact that many of the believers in the church had come out of a lifestyle that was incredibly sexually immoral. And so what you had, you have the situation where some of the church members were not only going along with the culture, but they were also justifying their behavior theologically. Just like some Christians today, the Corinthians were just engaging in sexual sin. They were also giving supposed biblical justification for it. And so what we're going to see in our text today is how Paul, A, corrects their theology, and then B, gives them a strong admonition regarding a sexual sin. And so I just want to apply this to us today. There are many, many people in the church today who have a really bad theology when it comes to sex. Really bad theology. The church, in my opinion, is to blame for, for much of that. But of course, our culture is to blame as well. And so if we need anything, we need a good theology of sex. And that's what we're going to get the next two weeks, all right? We're going to talk about a theology of sex. But we're also going to see and talk very specifically about Paul's admonition to flee from sexual sin, all right? So let's look at the passage now. Pick up with me in verse 12. All things are lawful for me. But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. Let's pause here for a second because I need to point out uh, something in the text. You'll note the quotation marks. Scholars believe Paul uh, here is quoting Corinthian theological um, slogans and then responding to and correct them, correcting them. So the quotes here are, are not Paul's words, they're actually the Corinthians' words, and, and rather they are their, their mantras that some of them were living by in order to really to justify their sexual sin. So uh, if you think about some of our kind of theological slogans today when it comes to sex. So, so you can finish this one for me. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, all right? Or really is more common today, love is, oh, you know this, you've heard it, right? Love is love, right? Love is love. So that's kind of what we've got here, the first century version of that, at least in the church. What's more here in verse 13, you need to look at with me closely, the quotation marks probably shouldn't end with the word food, but probably should end at the end of that sentence where it says, and God will destroy both one another. In other words, the Corinthians are probably saying that God's also going to destroy both the stomach and food. Now, I'll explain a little bit more uh, in a moment, but for now, let's continue uh, reading uh, in our text. Paul says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. 
And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Now, note here, that's not a Corinthian uh, theological slogan. That's Genesis 2.24, all right? Paul's quoting uh, the Old Testament. Verse 17, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. There are two key terms that you should have picked up on uh, in our passage. Those are the terms body and sexual immorality. Paul uses the term body eight times in nine verses, and in doing so communicates two important truths about our bodies. Number one, our bodies matter. They matter a lot. Your body matters. It matters a lot. And then two, we can't separate our bodies from ourselves. What we do with our bodies is what we do with ourselves. Both of these things will hopefully become more apparent as we walk through the message, but I want you to just get these right from the beginning. Our bodies matter and we can't separate our bodies from ourselves. Let's talk about sexual immorality. As I told you last week, the Greek word for sexual immorality is porneia, from which, of course, we get our word pornography. However, sexual immorality doesn't just refer to pornography, but to any, let me say that again, any sexual activity outside of marriage between a man and a woman. This is extremely important, so I want you to listen to me closely here. Sexual immorality, what I'm going to refer to throughout this message is sexual sin, includes not only pornography and sexual intercourse with someone that you are not married to, but it also includes masturbation, immodesty, crass joking and innuendo, provocative speech, and any kind of behavior that would stir up lust in your heart or in someone else's. So, so this would include like watching things that would, might potentially stir you up to lust or might stir up lust in someone else. That's included in this term, sexual immorality or sexual sin. And I want you to note here at the beginning what we are to do as believers when it comes to sexual sin. What does Paul tell us to do? There's, there's really one primary command in this passage. This is in verse 18. And he tells us to do what when it comes to sexual sin? He tells us to, he tells us to flee. He tells us to run away from it, to want run away from it, to flee from it. You know, when it comes to other temptations, the Bible uh, normally tells us to stand firm or to resist. However, when it comes to the temptation to sexual sin, the Bible instructs us to run as fast and as far away as we can. As one example, in Ephesians 5, Paul tells us that sexual sin should not even be named among us. That, that, that literally, there shouldn't even be a hint that there might be some sexual sin going on in the church. That's the New Testament teaching, urging, what it's calling us to. 
So the point is this. Sexual sin is not something to be trifled with. It's something to be avoided at all cost. Now, I know that this might sound ludicrous, given the fact that we live in a culture that was much like the Corinthian culture, a culture where even the suggestion that there is such a thing as sexual sin is scoffed out. So if you want to be mocked mercilessly, let me give you a suggestion. Go on to social media this afternoon and just kind of hint at the idea that some type of sexual activity outside of marriage might possibly be wrong. If you do that, I can absolutely guarantee that you are going to be tarred and feathered, that you are going to be mocked, and that you are going to be beaten like a pinata. Why? Well, because of the culture that we, we live in. We live in a culture today where anything that I want to do with anyone at any time, anywhere, as long as there's two consenting adults as a part of it is fine and okay, and you better not tell me that I am wrong in any way. That's the culture that we live in, and therefore, before we talk about how to flee from sexual sin, we first need to talk about why we should do so. So next week, we're going to talk, the entire message is about fleeing from sexual sin. But before we talk about how, we need to talk about why. What's the big deal? Why does the Bible repeatedly and with great fervor tell us to run away from any kind of sexual sin? Why? Well, here in our passage today, Paul gives us five reasons. Five reasons it's a big deal. Five reasons we should flee from sexual sin. Let me just say this. Because what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 6 is so countercultural and because we need it so desperately. Because here, here's the deal. Can I just be honest with you? I see a lot of Christians, instead of running from sexual sin, they're actually running to it. Not always intentionally, many times unintentionally. But the real reality is, is that many, many of us are, are watching things and we're engaging in, in banter and, and we are actually pursuing in many ways sexual sin when the Bible tells us to do the exact opposite. And so what I want to do today is I'm not going to speak uh, and use the word our, I'm going to say your in hopes that it will have a greater personal impact on each and every one of us, all right? So here are five reasons we should flee from sexual sin. Paul tells us, number one, you should flee from sexual sin because it will enslave your body. Sexual sin will enslave your body. Verse 12 tells us that the Corinthians uh, were claiming that their freedom in Christ gave them permission to do whatever they wanted sexually. Um, in fact, another word for lawful is permissible. So they're saying, all things are permissible for me. All things, I'm, I'm free to do them, so it doesn't matter who I have sex with. Of course, Paul vehemently disagrees and responds by telling the Corinthians that in thinking they're free sexually, they're actually revealing they're being dominated by their sexual desires. You see, when it comes to sex, being free to do whatever you want will inevitably turn into slavery. And that's because sex is powerful. It's potent. And therefore, when you give full reign to your sexual desires, you're always going to end up in bondage. When you allow your sexual desires to take you wherever they want, 
they will without question take you into slavery. So I want to make it clear here. We'll talk more about this next week as well. You're thinking right now, next week is going to be a really, really long message. But sex isn't the problem. The, The problem isn't with sex. Sex was created by God. It's a good gift. All right? The problem is with our sinful nature. You see, our sinful nature is disordered. We have disordered desires. And therefore, our desires when it comes to sex don't go in the right way, they go in the wrong way. And so when we say, I want to be free to go wherever my desires take me, they will always take us into bondage. They will always take us into slavery. Let me give you two examples here. One is pornography. Pornography has been called the new crack cocaine. It's been said that it is more addictive than heroin. That's because it takes a very short time for someone to get addicted. And once they're addicted, they find it incredibly difficult to stop. So if you think that you are free to look at porn, I guess in one way you are. It's legal. There's lots of it to look at. It's free in many instances. And you can look at it if you want to. But let me tell you, you won't be free very long because in a very short order, you will find that you're addicted. You will find that you are in slavery and you will find that it is very, very hard to get free of that addiction. Now, here's the wonderful truth. I need to go over here. Uh, I'm very uh, grateful to the Lord that uh, here at Harmony Bible Church, we see lots of people who actually do get free of pornography, all right? And it certainly is possible, but let me tell you, it's really, really difficult and it causes a lot, a lot of pain. Here's a second example. I don't really have time to go into this in, in detail, but it's really interesting that a number of feminists are now expressing concern that the sexual revolution has hurt women rather than helped them. It's really, really interesting, right? Sexual revolution in in many ways was about women having sexual freedom. And yet there are feminists, a number of them even now, who are saying, oh no. Oh no, because it has actually hurt women rather than help them. In this month's Atlantic Magazine, feminist Helen Lewis has an article entitled, The Problem with Being Cool About Sex. The problem with being cool about sex. Now, to be cool about sex means that your attitude about sex is as Ariana Grande puts it, I see it, I like it, I want it, I got it. And yes, I did just quote Ariana Grande in a sermon, all right? But that's what it means to be cool about sex. To be cool about sex, it says, hey, whatever you want, whenever you want, we're, we're all good about that. I'm good about it, you're good about it, we're, we're all good. And yet as... Helen Lewis points out in her article, there's a big problem with this. There's a big problem because many women and even men are finding out that it doesn't lead to greater enjoyment or lesser guilt or shame, but rather to more and greater difficulties. In other words, it leads to slavery, it leads to bondage. And if I can say this, especially to you young people, When it comes to sex, the world's way isn't working. It just ain't working. It's not working. Now, I know it might look like it's working on Instagram and TikTok and YouTube. That's all fake. That's all, uh, I mean, it's real in some ways. But what you're not seeing behind that is all the damage that is taking place. 
The world's way is not working. And it's fascinating and it's really good. Thankfully, the cracks in the world's way are actually beginning to show. There's significant pushback now from feminists. There's significant pushback about pornography. We're seeing all of the collateral damage. But here's what I want to say to you. Don't wait until the cracks show in your life. Believe God's word today and flee from sexual sin. Flee from it. Run from it. Flee from its enslaving power. Number two, you should flee from sexual sin because your body isn't meant for sexual sin, but for the Lord. Your body isn't meant for sexual sin, but for the Lord. Look at the second part of verse 13 again. Actually, let's look at the whole verse. Uh, Paul quotes the uh, Corinthians saying, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. That's their quote. And now Paul responds, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. There are two Corinthian beliefs that Paul's responding to here. The first is that sex is simply about your appetite. The Corinthians are saying sex is just physical. So like when your body is hungry, you eat. When your body wants sex, you simply indulge. There's nothing more to it than that. As the eminent theologian Katy Perry once sang, I don't even know your name. It doesn't matter. You're my experimental game. It's only human nature. That's for you millennials there, all right? Threw that one in there. Here's the second belief. And that's that the body is temporary and will one day be destroyed. And therefore, it doesn't matter what you do with your body. Some professing Christians have a similar belief they use to justify sexual sin. They propose it doesn't matter who you love or who you sleep with as long as your spirit is right. What matters is is the heart. And so as long as you're, you're kind and you're nice and you're fair and loving and just, then you can sleep with whomever you want to sleep with, all right? Because the body, what you do with your body doesn't matter. It only matters what's going on in your heart. And to this, Paul responds with what I would call a major truth bomb. One that should shape your view of your body. He says that your body isn't ultimately for sex, it's for the Lord. And your body's ultimately for the Lord because the Lord is for your body as evidenced by the fact that God raised the body of Jesus so that he could one day raise your body. Now that's a mouthful, but so let me repeat it. This is crucial uh, and in many ways it is the central theme of the passage. Why should we flee from sexual sin? We should flee from sexual sin because our bodies aren't ultimately for us, they're for the Lord. And we know they're for the Lord because God raised the Lord from the dead so that he could one day raise us. Brothers and sisters, your body isn't destined for destruction, but for resurrection. Did you get that? Your your body isn't ultimately destined to, to be in the grave to be cremated, your body's ultimate destination is resurrection. The body that you are in right now. The resurrection of Jesus means that one day God's gonna resurrect you and give you a perfect, glorious body just like Jesus's. Aren't you thankful for this? Are you excited about it? Are you excited that there's coming a day where you're gonna have a body that's not gonna grow old? It's not going to ache. It's not going to get fat. It's not going to have any problems whatsoever. Aren't you looking forward to that? Yeah. That, that is 
the future for every believer in Jesus. And because that is our future, that's what's going to happen to these bodies that we currently have. That's why we should flee from sexual sin right now. So, so listen, one day, and I've, I've told you this over and over, and I'm just going to keep telling you. In eternity, we're not going to be floating spirits on a cloud with halos and wings, playing a harp and singing kumbaya for all eternity. That's not what it's going to be like. In eternity, we are going to have bodies like we have now, only better, only perfect, only glorified. And in those bodies, we are going to live on a resurrected, renewed earth where we will enjoy this earth the way that God originally created us to experience it. So, so just to give you an example here, uh, yesterday, I, I got to go out and uh, yesterday afternoon and, and to go hunting, all right? It was a beautiful, glorious afternoon yesterday, wasn't it? And I, I enjoyed it other than was totally unsuccessful, all right? But it was successful because I got to enjoy God's creation. And one of the things I think about as I've seen the, the sun go down and the beautiful sunset, I'm thinking, if that's the way this sinful fallen earth is, what's it going to be like when everything is perfect? You can only imagine. That's our future. That's what we are living or we should be living for. And therefore, that's why we should flee sexual sin in our bodies right now. Listen, what you do with your body matters because you're going to have this body forever. A better one, for sure, but you're going to have your body forever. We're not going to be disembodied spirits in eternity. Now, I've thrown my notes apparently all over the place here. <laughs> Let me get that back or we'll be in problem, problem uh, here. So, which page am I on at this point? Here's number three. Number three, you should flee from sexual sin because your body is a member of Christ. You should flee from sexual sin because your body is a member of Christ. Look at verse 15 again. I'm just walking you through the passage. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute will, uh, becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Uh, Paul's argument is pretty complex here, so let me try to summarize what he's saying. When we believe in Jesus, our bodies are joined or united to his body. We become a member or part of the body of Christ. This means that, in effect, whatever we make ourselves a part of, we make Jesus a part of. Wherever you go, Jesus goes with you. And that's why, you can probably understand, Paul reacts so negatively to the thought of a believer having sex with a prostitute. Now, I'm not thinking, by the way, that prostitution is probably a big deal at Harmony Bible Church. And so, uh, to apply it to our context, we're simply talking about sex outside of marriage, all right? This is why Paul reacts so negatively to having sex outside of marriage. And that's because when um, we commit sexual sin as believers, we are in effect making Jesus a part of that sexual sin. That's why Paul responds here in verse 15 so negatively when he says never, may this never be the case. That word literally means unthinkable 
For Paul, it's unthinkable that Jesus would commit sexual sin, and therefore it's unthinkable that a believer would too. Now we need to go deeper here, so stick with me. Uh, When two people come together sexually, they're united as one flesh. That's Paul's point in verse 16, where again he quotes Genesis 2.24. And in Genesis 2.24, what is God doing? God's instituting marriage and ordaining sex as the means for sealing and signifying covenantal marriage vows. So so get this, sex is meant to seal and signify the covenant between a husband and a wife, and that's one reason sex is to be reserved for for marriage. So, So God creates Adam, and then he creates Eve, he brings them together, he performs the first wedding ceremony, and he says, therefore, for this reason, a man shall leave his mother and father, hold fast or cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That one flesh there, the primary thing is what he pointing out, is the sexual union between a husband and wife, which is meant to seal marriage vows and is meant to signify the marriage vows. In fact, as a married couple has sex all throughout their marriage, they are in effect resealing and re-signifying, reaffirming those marriage vows over and over and over again. And so God designed sex to only be in the context of marriage because it's only meant to be with someone that you have made a covenant uh, with. But more than that, in Ephesians 5, where he quotes Genesis 2.24 yet again, Paul tells us that marriage was designed by God to be an illustration of the relationship between Christ and the church, of the covenant that Jesus has made with believers, with us. Now, I don't know if you're following this or not, but that's why believers should ultimately avoid sexual sin. Sexual sin should be avoided, it should be fled from because it distorts the gospel. When we engage in sex with anyone but our spouse, we fail to reflect the truth that Jesus will always be faithful to us. In fact, we give the idea that Jesus might somehow be unfaithful, which is unthinkable because, friends, Jesus will never be unfaithful to us. Never. And that's a big reason we should flee from sexual sin. We should flee in order to point to, not away from the gospel. Let me personally illustrate this, all right? Uh, I've told you, you know, uh, Eve and I celebrated our 25th anniversary here a few months ago. So 25 years ago, I stood before a pastor. In fact, it was her father, which actually added more significance, it seems, uh, uh, to these marriage vows. But I stood before um, her father and before a bunch of witnesses and ultimately before God, and I made vows that I was going to be faithful to her, that I was going to keep myself to her and her only until death shall we part. Now, here's the truth, okay? Uh, Over the last 25 years, I have faced a lot of sexual temptation, okay? I don't know if you can handle that or not, but yes, your pastor faced this temptation. The truth is, is that if, if you were being honest, every single person in this room, whether married or single, would say that during their lifetime, even this week probably, they faced some kind of sexual temptation. But what I want you to hear from me today is that one of the primary motivations that I have for staying faithful to my wife is because in doing so, I have the great opportunity to point to Jesus' faithfulness to me. That in pursuing 
purity and fleeing from sexual sin, I get to put on the display to a watching world the wonder of how Jesus has been faithful to me and how he will always be faithful to me no matter what. So that's true for, for you married people, but let me just speak to you single people like, mate, how in the world does this apply uh, to me? Well, it applies in two ways. One, it's very likely that you will be married at some point in the future. And so by fleeing sexual sin and saying pure now, what are you doing? You are showing how you are being faithful and that faithfulness will reflect how Jesus is faithful to you. But even more than that, when, when you choose Jesus over sexual sin, what are you saying? You're saying the thing that I treasure the most in this world is Jesus Christ and what he has done for me. And, and let me tell you that uh, as fleeing from sexual sin today in the world that we live in is one of the greatest opportunities that we have. The thing that will probably to a watching, a lost and dying world speak the most about where our treasure truly is. So why do we flee from sexual sin? We flee for the sake of the gospel. Number four. You should flee from sexual sin because it's harmful to your body. It's harmful to your body. Look at verse 18. Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Now, Paul's not saying here that other kinds of sins, say um, gluttony or jealousy or worry, don't hurt your body but rather that sexual sin is harmful in a unique and damaging way. Sexual sin affects the body in ways that other sins do not. But again here, you can't simply think of your body in physical terms. So yes, sexual sin can lead to physical harm to your body through uh, STDs and other medical issues. Sexual sin can and does lead to this kind of bodily harm. But more than that, sexual sin leads to all kinds of spiritual, relational, and emotional harm as well. Harm that in many cases is much worse than physical harm. And like every other point in this message, I could spend a lot of time explaining how this is the case. But in summary, please listen to this closely. When you, when you sin sexually, you sin against God affecting your spiritual life. Paul's going to go on and say that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So when you sin sexually, you're, you're, you're sinning directly against God, which affects your relationship with him. You sin against others, namely the person you're sinning with, as well as your current or future spouse, affecting your current and future relationships. And you sin against you, affecting your ability to see yourself as God sees you. Sexual sin affects you in every way possible. And so I want to scream from the rooftop, flee sexual sin. Run from it because if you don't, you're going to hurt God, you're going to hurt others, and you're going to maybe most of all hurt yourself. Now, let me give some hope here. Uh, there's such a tightrope that I'm, I'm walking in, in this message. I hope you'll understand it because on the one hand, I, I want to warn you. And I want to strongly warn you, I'm trying to do that, right? Because there is a lot of danger here. And one of the truths is that we need to wake up to the danger. It's sexual sin is not something to mess around with. It's not something, as I said earlier, to, to trifle with. We need to run as fast and as far away as we can. And yet the tightrope that I'm walking in this is that I'm speaking uh, to rooms full of people 
who have committed sexual sin, who in many cases are currently struggling with sexual sin. And so the challenge in that is that in giving the strong warning, it can seem like the Bible is just beating us down, just trying to make us feel guilty. It's really possible that many of you are feeling shame this morning. And so so here's, here's what I want you to hear. I want you to hear verse 11 where Paul says, but that's what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reality is, is that, that even if you are currently engaged in sexual sin, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, that sin does not define you, Jesus defines you. You're, you're beautiful in him. That's how he sees you. So, so, so yes, I, I want to warn you. I, and I don't want to just simply warn you if you're not involved in it. I want to warn you if you are currently or have been involved in it. You need to hear the warning. But you also need to hear this. You need to hear that there's hope. You need to hear that you're not beyond repair. You need to hear that there is forgiveness. I love this quote by J.D. Greer where he says that there is more forgiveness and love and acceptance in Jesus than there is sin in you. Did you hear that? There's more love and acceptance and help in Jesus than there is sin in you. And so if you've been sexually immoral, if you are currently being sexually immoral, just know that there is hope. There's, there's not only hope that God says that you are beautiful, which he does, but there is also hope that you can live a beautiful life, that you can live not out of your brokenness, but that you can live out of your beauty. You are not beyond a repair. And so if you have been involved in sexual sin, if you are currently involved in sexual sin, what do you need to do? Well, if you haven't, repent. Turn from your sin. That's where it begins. It begins by confessing, by admitting that you are sinning. It begins then by asking God for forgiveness, which he will grant to you. Whoever comes to Jesus, he will never cast out. He will grant you that forgiveness. And then from there, it involves coming to the church and saying, hey, I really could use some help here. And if you'll do that, I promise you that we will come, that we will wrap our arms around you, that we will love you, and that we will do everything that we can to help you to heal. Now, I know some of you might be hesitant because the truth is is that we don't always get it right and we haven't gotten it right all the time. There have been many cases where we have not handled these things correctly, all right, because we're fallen people just like you are. So so I know it's difficult, I know it's hard, but I would just plead with you that as broken leaders, we want to help broken people and so please come and let us help you because if you will do that, I truly believe that the Holy Spirit will come in and he will help you to begin to live a beautiful life. And one of the reasons that I believe that is because I've seen it time and time again. I've seen pornography addictions broken. I have seen marriages healed. I have seen people whose lives have been totally transformed. Doesn't mean that it's easy because let me just tell you, it's not. But, but I, let, me, let me say this to you. It's a lot easier than continuing in the path that you are going. So, so life is always hard. Y- y'all got that by now? Life is always hard. It just depends upon which hard you want to choose. Are you going to choose the hard that's going to lead to to healing and to living a beautiful life? Are you going to choose the hard that leads into more and deeper brokenness? I wish I could tell you, come to Jesus. I wish we could have an altar call today. You could all come down forward. I could pray for you. And everybody goes home and lives happily ever after. It don't work that way. I've been trying to figure out how we could make it work that way. It just doesn't. It doesn't. It's hard. But there is a heart that leads to healing, and that's the heart of repentance. That's the heart of 
hardness of coming to the Lord and trusting in him and getting the help that we need. It's possible. We see it all the time. May today be that day for you. Through Jesus, you can live out of beauty, not out of brokenness. And that leads to this. Number five, you should flee from sexual sin because Jesus paid it all for your body. Jesus paid it all for your body. Look at verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Many ways, I think I just need to let the text speak for itself here. Why should you flee from sexual sin? Why should you flee from sexual sin? You should flee because your body isn't yours, it's his. You were bought with a price, and that price was the precious blood of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, when you were enslaved to sin and on the fast track to eternity in hell, Jesus allowed himself to be beaten, tortured, and killed to set you free and make you a body in which God will dwell forever. You are a believer in Jesus Christ. You have the Holy Spirit living in you. You are going to spend eternity in heaven with a resurrected body, all because of one thing, all because Jesus gave his body in your place. He bought you back from slavery. And because he bought you, you are not your own. We, we gotta get this, okay? In a culture that says it's my body, I can do with what I want to, that's not true for believers. It's not our body. We can't do what we want with it. It's his body. And so what do we do? We do what he wants us to do with our body, which is to flee sexual sin and to flee to him. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to close your Bibles, all right? Put your stuff away because I know um, you're all about to get distracted and do all that kind of stuff. I see you do all that stuff, by the way. Mm. Okay. Just about the time where I'm trying to make my biggest point. So, see, somebody's getting up and leaving on me anyway. <laughs> but here, here's what I want you to get. I want you to just, just look at me just for, for two more minutes, all right? Here's, here's what it comes down to. It really ultimately comes down to whether or not you're gonna live for sex or you're gonna live for the one who died for you. Are you gonna live for sex or are you gonna live for the one who died for you? You know, sex can't die for you. In fact, it will make you die for it. If you live for sex, it'll kill you. Maybe not physically, could physically, but it will certainly kill you emotionally relationally and spiritually. That is the end of living for sex. Only one person can die for you, and that's Jesus. Only one person did die for you. Jesus paid it all for you. And now because he did, you can, you get to live for him. Who are you gonna live for? What are you gonna live for? Live for the one who gave his life in your place. Be overwhelmed by Jesus' love and in response, flee from sexual sin.